if you can work for yourself and like not starve, then you're doing a pretty good job, I would say. That's the voice of Stefan Rurak, owner of Stefan Rurak Studio. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Stefan Rurak, owner of the Portland, Maine and Brooklyn, New York-based furniture company, Stefan Rorak Studio. If you ask Stefan about his furniture business, he will talk on the artistic side of the business. But with multiple employees, multiple shop locations, years under his belt, and a solid name in this industry, he definitely has the business side down as well. He, and by extension his company, walk that fine line between art and functional furniture. And with that balance, you really have to pave your own way. And that is exactly what he did. Follow along as we talk about art versus furniture, gallery representation, the importance of email trails, and much more. Stefan really knows his business. So let's hear all about it in his own words. I'd always been drawn to the visual aesthetics. Um, I was always interested in um, making art, whatever that be painting, drawing, in the sense that in elementary school, I remember teachers would always like keep something of mine to show the next class. And it sounds kind of lame, but I mentioned that in the sense that early on in my life, I received positive reinforcement for that area of my life, like creating things that were visually whatever, whatever a second grade teacher thought was worthy of it. But anyway, uh, in high school, I was like pursuing more art outside of school, making art magazines, like starting an art mag, whatever, always going to galleries. I grew up in DC, so I had a lot of access to free uh, museums and whatnot. I, I just remember just loving art, being around art. It, it was something that turned me on from an early age. I went to like liberal arts college, Oberlin in Ohio, and I started out thinking that I was going to, I guess, pursue fine art. I decided not to go to art school because I felt that it would be too um, limiting. I mean, I don't even know if I would have gotten in or could have afforded it, but it was just kind of like, I felt like just focusing on that would not be very interesting. Anyway, liberal arts school, thought I would pursue the fine art there, but then I felt that was irresponsible in this whatever sense that um, I should arm myself with some degree that can be applied in the real world, whatever that may mean. It was probably economic is what I was considering. Like, what am I going to do? In retrospect, that's a silly thing to even think about because what is liberal arts good for anyway, really? Basically, I bounced around history uh, psychology, philosophy. Um, and then I found my way back. It was actually through a photography course. I had a fantastic professor, Pipo Nugandiu, and he's an artist in his own right. I was taking his photo class and we were doing film and the process really clicked with me. So uh, this is my first, I think, awareness of craft ever. So it was, it was like the tool, the machine, the mechanism, the camera, um, the film. 
developing the film in the dark room you know you're locked in this closet shaking up the chemicals the 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 enormous uh potential of what you can do uh when you print when you expose the negative onto the paper and how you can manipulate that that was my first exposure again to to craft and i fell in love with that element i then started doing silk screening and that was also another while these are art forms they're also forms of craft because they rely in my opinion because they rely heavily on tools until that point my exposure to art had simply been like drawing and painting that that's all i'd been into and it was through being in school doing art history courses um I decided, you know, I'll just major in this. This is what I really love to do, and that's what I should do. And art history class kind of really opened me up to, like, what art could be. And so, you know, when you're young, you're, like, hardcore and pure. I got really fascinated by performance art, you know, stuff from the 60s, early 70s. I I never was aware that this was a thing or that it could be considered art. Um, and it just kind of blew my mind because it made me realize that anything can be art. You can, uh, one of my favorite artists is Chris Burden. He, um, he's most famous for shoot piece. He, he had a friend, uh, shoot him with a 22 in a gallery. You know, he also had someone, uh, kick him down a flight of stairs. These weird things that, um, kind of just blew my mind. I was like, oh, this is art. This can be art. Anything can be art. I thought this was the purest form of art because the performance is not something that could be bought or sold. It was not a commodity. How far I've come from that now, because I, I sell commodities, but. I hear you, I, I really do, because you can start off one way and really holding to your values and then the world happens and you have to figure out a way to to keep those core values, but also make a living. Once you got out of college, after you developed those artistic sensibilities that you started to understand what were the next steps what did you what did you do after that so i I moved to new york after college just being like i'm going to be an artist um working you know mediocre jobs during the day making art at night and i was just resigned to the fact that this is what you do when you're an artist and um i had many many jobs but um one of them was uh, I was an art handler at Phillips Depurian Company, uh, I think for two years. And I was on the ops crew for some reason. And basically there, uh, that was my first exposure to like building things. You know, we would knock down walls, rebuild the galleries every week for like, every two weeks for the new show that comes in. They just cycle, you know, just putting up drywall, framing, you know, uh, hanging art, but basically just building walls, knocking them down figuring out how to hang like ridiculously heavy and selling kefirs um, because of my photo experience. I also assisted photographers and on one shoot, I met this um, model Quetzal and a couple months later he called me and he, he was also a part-time, I guess when he wasn't uh, modeling, he was uh, woodworking. And so he had a little space in the Navy yard um, in his friend's shop and he called me like months later, he'd help on something. And I, I came into the shop. That was my first time in a shop. This new place, these, these new uh, machines, tools, I just saw them, I didn't even use them. But um, I wasn't familiar with like studio furniture or anything. Maybe it was the first live edge table. It sounds silly now that I'd seen, but there was something about it that was more than just utilitarian. There was the artistic element to it. And so that connected with me. At that time, um, I was very into um, like Zen and meditation because I had a bike accident a couple of years prior, I think a year before that experience. And I'd been hit by a car. I was wearing a helmet, but I got messed up. And they told me that if I hadn't been wearing the helmet, I, I could have probably died on impact. And so basically the reason I mentioned this is that I was having all these problems with my uh, headaches and my brain, blah, blah, blah. I went to this neurologist, this neurologist said that I should start meditating to like help. So then I started meditating and I started reading all these Zen koans that really 
uh, created this like new like level of focus awareness. And anyway, so when I got to the shop for the first time, I saw that oh, there's this 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 uh, arena in which you can create things that are um, aesthetically beautiful. Um, you know, I think they're art now. I don't know if people call them art. I think it's all art, but the level of focus required in the work uh, really helped me connect. I connected to that because of my, um, my, my, at the time, my current like uh, practice in meditation. And um, it was like meditating when you're working, you know, when you're, as I began to learn, when you're hand cutting dovetails or, or doing inlays, it like requires a, um, level of focus these, these things all, all click together to, for me and um i started coming in and i guess apprenticing quetzal so when he was modeling i was there when he wasn't he was there and teaching me how to do certain things um i was living on unemployment at the time so i was able to work for no money um classic like apprenticeship um and then I actually kind of like a pivotal moment was after my bike accident, I was like questioning, why am I making art? What am I doing? You know, who's going to see it? And so I had applied to the Peace Corps and um, the Peace Corps is like a, a, a two year application process. And so I started apprenticing Kepsol and I found this like thing that I loved. And then I had gotten accepted to the Peace Corps. And I remember that was like a big decision for me. Like, should I go, you know, do this crazy life-changing good experience or should I stay in Brooklyn and pursue this thing I'm doing for no money seeing where it would take me when I had to make that decision it was a big deal because it was like the crossroads kind of like I didn't know where either one could take me but it was like rolling the dice seeing which one I think would be a quote-unquote better investment for my future maybe I have to say that I really love this story so far. It has everything. You have the highbrow pursuit of artistic merit. You have the action adventure drama of a near-death experience. And then the powerful story of you pulling yourself out of there, fixing your body and your mind. Then out of nowhere comes a mysterious stranger who shows you an entire different career path, something that, that you really get attached to. And and then once we think everything's going in a smooth direction, you hit a crossroads of what are you going to do next with your life? Which path are you going to take? It's a it's a cliffhanger. And I know everybody listening wants to know what you do next. So where do you go from there? Which path do you choose? Um, and so I stayed. And then Quetzal had to leave the country for various reasons. And um he hooked me up with um, Paulo Samco, who uh, we all know. And um, Paulo had, they're like best friends and Paulo had taught Quetzal. And um, then I apprenticed Paulo for eight months, same deal, uh, no money. So yeah, so then I was getting serious about it, you know, working uh, for no money and then staying after to try to like tinker around my own things. And like, so at Paulo's shop, I really learned how to, um, turn shape i like you know he has all these like uh hand-shaped chairs and rockers and so i was doing a lot of sh freeform shaping with the grinder um but that also being around paula's work it was you know his, his stuff is uh danish danish modern um and that, that was my early uh i had an early affinity for that style but he has like an artistic bent to what he does like with his little animals and his little secret drawers and so it kind of like made me see like a little you know even further past the utility and, and all these little elements that you can invest in it that are creative beyond the the function and after eight months i just i didn't hit a wall but i realized this guy's not going to let me touch the saw you know from god knows it's gonna be another year or something and um I didn't even ask for a job. I just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go. And I rented a small bench space in a shared shop in Bushwick, worked part-time jobs, came into this uh, shop on days off or whatever when I wasn't working. And I think it probably took me, and I think that was in 
it was right when the economy crashed. It was like, yeah, 2008. I think it took me probably like three years before I was able to be in the shop five days a week, like doing it full time. I learned a lot seeing what goes on in Paul's shop, knowing how to like, you know, I mean, there's a lot to standing, but the shaping and, and all that. But most of the stuff, it's just, uh, you know, trial and error. Um, you know, I have a lot of scars in my stomach from kickback and stuff like that. But um, yeah, largely self-taught. And, um, you know, I guess, like I said, my early, you know, my earlier pieces that like are no longer even on my website or whatever, they're very, very um, derivative you know, Maloof inspired and all that stuff, uh, aping that style. And as the years went on, um, I slowly moved beyond wood. Um, so like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the maestro, but I understand wood pretty well. And um, I have a tendency that once I understand something, I lose interest in it. And while I still use wood, often all the time and um, I can build a kitchen or whatever, you know what I mean? But um, I think the way to excel in this field, the way I've always looked at it is you have to create something, sounds trivial, but that's unique. And form is really hard because we're, we're in this like world of furniture that's tied to utility. So it's hard to move beyond the box. You know, it doesn't make sense to make a, a circular cabinet. I mean you can do it, but uh, you're probably not going to get paid appropriately for it, how difficult it is. So I think trying to move beyond form is so difficult that it's like moving into materials. I think materials are where the potential is. And that's why I'm very interested in finishes specifically. So like moving into uh, steel, concrete, what uh, really allowed me to go in a more I guess a weirder or artistic direction was that now there's a body of work I do, which is more artistic oriented that's represented by a gallery in Manhattan called Todd Merrill studio. That's been a great thing that happened to me two years ago. Um, or I think three years now uh, I signed with them. That was like kind of the best moment to date in my career because I mean, you know how it is, man. And that's where we met doing all the trade shows and stuff. And it's like, you got to do the trade shows. I remember when I was working with Paulo, he was like, you got to do the trade shows. You got to do the trade shows. What's the point if nobody sees it? I mean, the point is to make yourself happy, but you got to make money, right? That idea of being an artist that you had in the beginning when I'm an artist, but I also have to do jobs that I don't want to do, things that aren't related to my passion to the things that I want to do is not, is not a great feeling. And I'm sure you can agree with that because you want to be doing what you want to be doing. And yes, it's selfish, but that's your goal. Your goal is to make money doing things that you enjoy. And when you found furniture and when you decided that you could build furniture and start to make a living maybe it wasn't a big living to begin with but it was growing and it was growing and as you jumped into more things and said yes to more things oh i can do that i can do that the money you were making grew but also the skills were growing as well until you came to making the stylized furniture that you make today and having a gallery that you mentioned that sells your work and a place that represents you whether it's a physical store or someplace online or your own store that really helps you to make money which is unfortunately it all comes down to art is great and creating is great but you can't do that as a living if you're not making money from it so can you talk about the experience of having representation for your work yeah, yeah. When uh, when Todd approached me, it was kind of the greatest sense of it was a sense of accomplishment, meaning that you do these trade shows every year, year after year. You're always making new stuff to try to like show the the, the audience, the buyers, the designers, the architects, something to catch their eye. And I would always make something that was like a bit weirder or more artistic or whatever. You know, I started like scratching. I used a grinder and cut drawings into steel that's clad on cabinets and, and stuff like that. And so 
I, every, every year that was my chance to like show people like something new. So I would do something that, you know, turned me on and uh, rarely did anyone ever buy that. Most of the jobs, honestly, personally, most of the jobs that I got from the trade shows were they're good jobs, they're money jobs, but they were, um, you know, fabrication. Oh, I see that you can do this. Can you make this piece for me? And it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm psyched to get any job, you know, I mean, it's, um, doing this stuff is tough you know it's 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 i mean you know how it is it's just tough the work is easy getting the work is the hard part that's what i always say you know like making the work is like that's usually fun right um but the gallery approaching me was a big deal because i remember one of the books that i had like a coffee table book that my mom had given me um when I was starting out was uh, this, this Todd Merrill book, a collection of the people he repped, you know, J.B. Blanc, Nakashima for a bit, you know, all these, these, these greats. And uh, cause he started off as dealing in antiques, Paul Evans. Um, when, yeah, they approached me, it was like a sense of validation. It was like, man, what I'd been doing for 10 years was good enough for this guy to like notice me. I find it more difficult to stand to do a show and like talk to people for eight hours a day than like being in the shop. It's more exhausting. I don't like that aspect of the job at all, but um, selling yourself is extremely important. Uh, arguably it's more important than the work. I mean, it's kind of like a sad fact that I believe, but I think that 99 or 90% of this is perception. And uh, I don't really know how much people actually really care about what it is you do they care about how it's perceived in the marketplace the gallery approaching me it allowed me an arena within which to work now where i can indulge my quote unquote like crazier ideas like my my crazier finishes uh weirder things and i'll make them and then they're going to be shown they're going to be in a gallery around the world you know so it's a really great experience you know it's a 50 50 split it's a gallery relationship right but um within that 50 50 split i'm still making um i'm making off pretty well 25 percent of what i do is my own my quote my own but what i mean it's the work that if you go to stefanrurak.com you'll see my own furniture it's a bit more conventional it's still modern and whatever but uh it's more conventional i sell that through myself and then the galleries bringing in like at the moment, like 75% of my earnings come through them and, you know, commission goes through them. And I don't even know who the client is, but it doesn't bother me because I don't have to deal with the client. I'm just dealing with, with the gallery. So a lot of the business element, which is like a major drag in this line of work is taken care of. And so that's what you're, you're paying. I'm paying for the exposure, the headache free interactions with the clients and the freedom to indulge my more um, esoteric ideas and, you know, it's weird stuff. It, it's, it's not for everyone by any means. It doesn't fit in very well. And that's, that's a hard thing to sell, right? It's at the end of the day, you're making furniture, right? And like furniture, yeah, it's beautiful and whatever, but it's not, most people don't want it to be a statement. They want it to fit in nicely. And that's, you know, that's the thing. They, they, they don't want it to jump out. And so I guess I'm like, I don't know if I'm an artist masquerading as a furniture maker or a furniture maker pretending to be an artist. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter, but I kind of feel like I'm like, I feel that my trajectory is like, I'm trying to be an artist and sell art, but everybody wants to be an artist. Meaning art is like the greatest game in town, right? If you can sell art, like straight up art, you make a lot of money because art is, uh, art is art. It, it, it's always been really, it's always been it's tangent, but it's always been really interesting to me. Um, and this is why I started doing like, you know, flat pieces, wall pieces. And they're so fascinating to me because I would literally do use the same tools, techniques, and methods on something that was flat and hung on a wall as I would on something that was say a cabinet. The form was different and there was a function tied to the cabinet. There's no function. You can argue that a wall piece has an aesthetic function, but beyond that, it has no utility. And it was crazy to me because I could charge for the wall piece, you know, not the same amount as the cabinet, but 
close to maybe. And the amount of work was like a fraction, but because it had no utility assigned to it, somehow in the marketplace, it's perceived as more valuable. And that, that's something that interests me to this day. And I kind of like, I think I play a lot around with, so like I, I make art that you can use, but because you can use it, it's, it's less, it's worth less than art that you can't use. When you're talking about the split with the gallery and the 50-50 split, you're basically wholesaling your furniture to them. And a lot of people get worried about that. They say, I'm giving 50% of my earnings. I'm giving 50% of what I'm making to somebody else when I could just be doing it myself and I could be getting 100%. But in truth, that 50% is an entire marketing budget, is all those things that you would have to be putting money into on your own end to promote your work. And yes, it's being taken off the piece of furniture and not specifically paid out in those terms like marketing and and client relations, but that's, that's what it is. That's what you're buying into when you're selling wholesale to a store and it can either be good and a good relationship like you have right now where they're reaching a lot of clients or it can be bad but if it is bad then you're not selling pieces and you can know it's bad and you can know that it's not a good company that you're working with because you're not selling pieces and then you don't owe them anything because 50% of no sales is nothing so that that wholesale relationship can be great for people like you who only want to do their own work. They don't even care who the client is. They just want to make the work and put it out there. Definitely. It's um, when you say 50, 50, it's like it knocks people's socks off. Right. But what's important about it is that, I mean, I'm like being with Todd, it's like a niche market, right? There's probably only 10 major galleries in the world that represent this kind of like, weird area i think they call it quote unquote the gray area between design and art whatever that means it's niche stuff so like if i was you know it's like studio furniture if i was like making the model i have what i'm trying to say is like i don't think it would work in a lot of arenas um, unless you were making this highly specialized uh product meaning what i'm doing Every piece, we, we obviously every table that any furniture maker makes is unique, right? Because the wood grain is different, whatever. Something's always different. However, there's only so many deviations, you know, that happen within uh, reproductions, right? And what I'm doing is it's everything is like really, it's, I mean, it's just very different. And I, I like that. That's why I'm into it. Cause I don't like my business model, honestly, my business model is probably a silly business model. Cause like, you know, if you're smart, you create things that you can easily reproduce. Like that's how you make money that you can make 20 of them at a time. Either they go order, they sit on your shelf because people order them again and again. If you have to make a one-off every time, which is what I've done for 12 years now, with Todd, without Todd, it's hard to make ends meet on that, right? We all know how that is. And um, now, yeah, you're right. The 50, you know, I've, I've been on that road. I've paid marketing people over the years. I've done that, you know, and it's just like, it's such a weird area to be in. You know, you give someone money and they can't guarantee, they can't guarantee you any return, right? Like, how could they? But you're just like, uh, I don't know. Are they working for me? Is it just like bad luck? Is my product garbage? I don't know. So many elements. So for me, it works. And I think it only works because it's just a good match. And I guess what would I say to anyone is like, it's like anything. It has to be a good relationship. It has to be a good match. And there has to be a level of trust where you feel like the person has your back, your best interests involved. And that's that's just a hard thing it's a hard thing to find for anyone, but it's exposure. It's like all about exposure. Cause like you're saying, you know, it's like doing the shows every year. Like how much money am I spending on that? Probably annually. What was I spending? Like, I don't know, 20, 30 K, you know, with two or three shows making the stuff, getting it there, you know? So like, 
that's a lot of money and it's your time. And for someone like me, it's frustrating. I don't really like chit-chatting. That's not my jam. I can do it and I have to do it. And you have, you absolutely have to do it. You have to do it if you're in this line of work. Like kind of like actually more important than your work is like who you're talking to and how you're talking about it. The work actually isn't that important, I believe, because there's plenty of stuff out there in my humble opinion that, um, and I'm not saying mine isn't, but I'm just saying there's plenty of stuff out there that's garbage. You know, my stuff could be used as garbage too, but by my standards, there's plenty of people killing it who are making um, just things that personally I don't think are interesting that are derivative and whatever, but they're killing it because they have a good model set up and the thing doesn't even need it. I mean, it's kind of disheartening, I think, but it's, I think it's the truth. It's like the thing doesn't even need to be that good because there's plenty of things out there that are raking in the money and are ubiquitous that aren't that good, whether it be quality or design wise. Um, well, that goes, you know, that goes back to your marketing and how you're presenting your work and, you know, some people present really well and some people don't present really well. And that is where the line's drawn because your furniture pieces that you're building, you and everybody else, the context of where it is really, really matters. Your work, these artistic pieces that split the line between functional and artistic pieces they probably would not sell at a standard furniture store at a store that sells couches and end tables and regular living room furniture. But you found a place that is an art gallery, but also sells functional work. So that is, that's the platform that you're selling it from. And it makes sense in that context. So what it comes down to is you need to find where your furniture fits in context when you're trying to sell it to an audience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course you got to find where you fit in and that, that's like a very hard thing in itself. Cause like you could, I mean, honestly you could fit in nowhere, but you, you've got to, yeah, you've got to figure out where it can work. It's kind of like a double-edged sword though. Cause like, don't get me wrong. Like I'd love to build a kitchen for you. You know what I'm saying? I'd love to build uh you know, some cabinets, some boxes, some easy stuff. Cause like I can do that. We can do that. You know, and when you have a company, you have people to pay, you know, my company's small, but you know, I've, I've, I got to keep my guys fed. I've got a family. I got to keep them fed. And yeah, you know, it's, 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 you know, it is like, I, I've, I've kept things lean forever. Like I've, 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 I've never grown beyond uh, two people. And it's like, I've seen plenty of my friends grow like 10 guys, huge shops, all these machines. And um, it works for some people because they're like in that zone. That's their mindset kind of thing. But you have to, you know, then, then you're spending all day, they're, they're spending all day on the computer and they're like not in it when they start it. You know, it's classic, classic story. And it's like, I kind of been lucky. I managed to like straddle that line. Sure. I'm, there's days when I'm on the computer, but I'm still, my hand is like touching everything. And that's, it's like a blessing and a curse. And, um, but that's the way I want it to be. Um, I don't want to manage, it's managing people is a whole nother thing. And um, it's just a classic story. You got into it for one thing and then you end up doing another thing. And I guess it sounds preachy, but just cause I've seen plenty of my peers and do this and like, I always wondered, like, why haven't I grown? But I realize now after doing it for 12, 13 years, it's been like this because, like, this is the way I want it to be. Um, I think it, again, like, it sounds preachy, but you got to be honest with yourself and, like, what makes you happy. Like, so making money is really important, but, you know, this line of work is a beautiful and special line of work because I don't think there's really any other field where you can say that at the end of every day, you've learned something like I can step back and I can be like, I can have done the same thing that I've done before, but I learned something different about it today. Like I I figured this little thing out and you take that with you and you run with it moving forward. So there's, there's constant growth. There's, there's like endless amounts of growth in this line of work. And I think that's why a lot of people get into it because it's like, it's not monotonous. 
um, even when you're doing the same thing, it's, there's always something different going on. That, that word growth and even the word success, they, they have so many different meanings and they mean something different to everybody. And you, you've been in some of the most prestigious galleries in the world and you sell to art collectors and furniture collectors and have been in a ton of press and you have growth, but the way you're thinking of growth is having a 20 person shop, 30 person yeah, yeah. being a, being a factory, but somebody's like that can look at you and say, I wish I had that growth. I wish I had that yeah. success where you get to wake up every day and you get to make something new and you have a small team of people, but it's a dedicated team of people. And you're, you're not beholden to clients. You are, you are doing what you want to do. So that, that idea of, of growth and success, you can't get bogged down in other people's success and other people's growth. And you can look at it and you can respect it and you can try to emulate it. And if that's something that you want, you can go towards that. But that success, other people's success, once you get there, isn't necessarily where you want it to be. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's just, this could be too far out, but it's just like part of the human condition. It's kind of like where the grass is always greener and too, more often than not, we don't, as humans, I think we don't like appreciate what we have. I Meaning I'm, I'm guilty of it all the time. And it's like, like you were just saying, I, I look, I'm always like, man, why am I not killing it like that guy? Why am I not killing it like that guy? But then, like you said, someone else might look at me and be like saying the same thing, you know, and it's just um, I think it just pays to be thankful all the time, just like humble and, and, and appreciative. Like like if you if you can if you can work for yourself and like not starve, then you're doing a pretty good job, I would say, especially in, in this line of work. I mean, I'd say if you're doing anything and you can work for yourself and not starve. You should be proud of yourself. But furniture, furniture is just particularly harder because of all the overhead. Um, it's very hard to break into, as you know, like because of all the equipment, the space, the materials, everything is so expensive. It's like, you know, it's like when you look at how much money you pulled in, like at taxes times, and it's just like, God damn, you know, and then you see how much money you have. It's like, where did that go? It's like almost... It's unfair, right? Because you're taxed on the money you pull in and like not what you're, you know, it's like, uh, I think just say, yeah, it's a hard line of work and it's very hard to break into too. You know, there's a lot of people who want to get into it, right? But because it's so hard to operate, it's hard for anyone to give anyone a chance. You know, it's anyone who hasn't, anyone who's green, you know, it's like, uh, it's so hard um, to pay someone who doesn't know how to do the work is like, why would you ever do that? But that's, yeah, that's a whole nother thing. But anyway, long story short, I think anyone who can feed themselves and do it in any way should be proud of themselves. I want to get into your your company. And I understand that 75% of, of your sales are through your representation. Do You don't have to worry about clients on that end. You're just building what you want to build. But for a while before that, and still to a certain extent, you do build your own furniture for clients outside of that relationship. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that because your, your work, you said you can do kitchens, you can do boxes, you can do cabinet work, you can do that kind of work. But what you're making is so incredibly stylized that that it is you know people are coming to you for that type of work they don't see your work and think this guy could do a great kitchen for me you know yeah. this guy this guy could make a great for mica kitchen for me they yeah. they're, they're looking for a specific thing but your work is also all one of a kind Yes, you're duplicating a style, but you're not duplicating an exact piece. 
how are you selling that to clients when it's yes, it's your style, but you say, I'm going to make you something in this style, but end of the day, it could look completely different. How, how do you, how do you talk to clients about that? You know, they'll come to me, they'll see a photo, you know, on the site or wherever they saw it. And they'll be like, I'll like the, I'd like this. And, you know, it's always a different size, um, this size, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe they'll say, Oh, you know, what kind of wood is that? It's like usually walnut. And they're like, Oh, what do you think about this? Or I got these color values. It's, it's about how, how does it, it's about engaging the person and it's a discussion. So it's kind of like pushing them in certain directions. So uh, being asking them a question of like, where is it going? What else is in the room? Or um, it's actually, I guess it's just, it's uh, getting to know a little bit more about them and then searching within that knowledge for cues that you can uh, not manipulate or exploit, but you can play off of. And um, you can say, oh, maybe, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I've never done that piece with like a white oak. And then maybe I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. And so then finding a way to sell that to them to say, you know, this would be great. And then part, part of the sales, honestly, is we've never done that. You know, I've never seen that before. Um, this would be great. I'd be really excited because I would be legitimately excited to do that. And um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a one-off. Things can be one-off dimension wise, but things can be one-off for little details. And um, it's silly because I kind of make my life harder. You know, it's uh, by doing new things, but that's, that's what interests me. Um, but yeah, it's to, to your question, it's talking with them, getting to know them as much as you can within that initial interaction. And then obviously they're going to know what they get because there's always a drawing. There's always a rendering. There's always a sign off. Do you know what I mean? You need that, you need that um, signature approval because you need something to point to you need a paper trail you need um no like discuss everything i like you know emails signatures that that stuff is very important i don't want to have to ask this because i because i understand that art shouldn't have to be a sellable thing it shouldn't have to have a price tag on it but you know as well as i do that the way you keep making art is because you sell it. How, how are you pricing this work, this one of a kind work? Because it's not a cabinet job. It's not this many linear feet. It's not this much hardware. It's not this much spray. It's, it's, it's a little bit that, but you're, you're mostly selling that it's a one of a kind piece, that it's an art piece, that it's it's a style and you're you're selling more on your name and your reputation than the materials that go into it. So how are you pricing these pieces out? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to like, I mean, it starts with the way anyone starts. Yeah, like cost of materials, uh, the cost of labor, you know, I... Labor materials, I'll never, I never know exactly what amount of labor is, but I keep, I mean, every project we do, literally every project I have, you know, I have clipboards with the drawing and the timesheet. So it's not because I'm even trying to keep tabs on the guys. I just want to know how long this took, you know? So at the end of every project, I calculate the hours of labor so i see how on point i was and that that's very i think that's very helpful i learned that from some other guy years ago um i thought he was like crazy and neurotic but it makes sense because that, that way you're knowing are you pricing accordingly it's, it's a great way to know if you're charging enough but anyway through that you get experience so you know i can look at it i can see something and be like i think this is going to take this amount of hours and then you always add extra you always add extra, you always add extra. It's the same way you always add like 30, 40% to your solid. You always add extra to your labor because things mess up. And then on top of that, it's just like, what do I think this is worth? Meaning not even what do I think it's worth? It sounds bad and hopefully no clients listening to this, but it's like, what can I get away with? You know, what do I want? Um, and that 
you know, I, I appreciate you say I have a name, but like that has to do with more like, what does the market look like? What are other people paying for things that are like this, you know? So just knowing your, not even your competition, just your peers, like what are people on this level selling their cabinets for? And so you see, is your price in line with that? Because if it's in line with that, then you're like, all right, I can get away with this, right? Do you push it higher? I don't know. And that has to do, since every piece is unique, there's like a benchmark price for every piece, but you have the flexibility to raise it or lower it depending on certain elements. And it's legitimate because there's certain changes. So the client doesn't think you're like, you know, pulling the wool over their eyes. But I'd say, yeah, it's getting a benchmark price and figuring out what, you know, are you gonna make a hundred percent profit on it? Um, does that sound right? Does that look like a, an acceptable figure? You know, cause like, you know, six foot cabinet, whatever it may be, you know, $30,000, I don't think so. You know what I mean? $15,000, that sounds more appropriate. There's, there's just a range. And so you're, that, that's why it's different than art because you can only get away with so much in this field. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there are certain parameters within which we all work in. Um, so if your piece needs to be $30,000, you shouldn't be making that piece basically because I'd venture to say you'll always lose money on it. The way you talk about your furniture and the the furniture industry in general and the art industry in general is is very much focusing on the creative side of it and the idea that it is a creative endeavor and it's a passion endeavor and it's something that you have to love but when we get more into it and get more into your actual company the business side really shows through. And I think that you play that down a little bit, but you know the business side and you have to, or else you wouldn't still be in business and you wouldn't still be doing what you want to do. So you have both sides of the industry, the furniture side and the business side of the furniture business well in hand. There are people out there who are trying to start their own furniture business. They're trying to build their own company and they are looking for advice. And there are also people out there who have been doing this for a long time and they just haven't been getting the growth that they want or need in their company to keep going. So from your experience, what's some advice that you could share with people listening for helping their company grow and succeed? If you're not losing money, do everything and anything because you never know what job is going to take you where kind of thing. So like part of the problem that I have now is like what you mentioned is that designers don't come to me anymore for kitchens really it's like rare i can build them really well and i sometimes wish that they were coming to me for that because you know those those jobs are good money and i started out doing that you know i started out building anything all built-ins built-ins all built built-ins are great right but as my career progressed you know i don't show any of that on my website i don't show any of the built-ins i don't show any of like the restaurants and all that stuff but that stuff's really solid money. That's stuff that can float you while you work on your own designs. But then it's like a double-edged sword because like now people just think, well, I'm with this gallery, so I make that, whatever you have to buy through the gallery. But even my own furniture, they think, oh, like you were saying before, they're not, they're like, oh, this guy makes the stylized stuff. Why would I ask him to build me my design? Please ask me to build your design because you see what I can do. I can do a lot of stuff. And I would just give advice to people that it, you don't want to limit yourself. You don't want to pigeonhole yourself. And again, I feel like it's something I'm struggling with right now because I'm kind of pigeonholed. 
but it's like pretty much anything, keeping yourself open to every opportunity that comes your way. So like if there's a project that you don't really want to do, but if it's going to make you money, you should do it because do well on that project. That's a designer. Obviously we all know designer relationships are the best. Then they're going to come back to you with something else, something else. And then they're going to discover when you like discreetly slip their way, like, Oh, look at this thing I made. And they're like, Oh, you make this stuff too. And they're like, Oh, and then they can, you know, it's just things build. So I think it's best to keep yourself very open in every sense of the word. Um, because you never know what will take you somewhere, anywhere. <laughs> it's true. You never know. And you got to keep yourself open. You got to keep putting yourself out there because luck is great and things falling in your lap are great. But if you're not ready to accept that, if you're not ready to capitalize on that, then you can be the luckiest person in the world and you'll still go out of business. So keeping an open mind is is very, very important, along with all the other things that you shared. And I really do appreciate you sharing them. I want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for sitting down with me and sharing your story. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Oh, yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. It was great chatting with you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at the Build with Ethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.